Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the South Bay Show, South Bay Spotlight. Recorded on Sunday, September 20th, 2020. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Live, love, laugh, and leave a legacy. That's what we do here in the South Bay of Los Angeles, and it's a beautiful place to do just This segment that. of the South Bay Show is brought to you by Your Actualized Visions. A local advertising agency, Your Actualized Visions offers all your advertising needs under one roof. From logo design, business cards, banners, and signage, to online services such as website design, SEO management, promotional videos, reputation management, and loyalty promotions, you name it and Your Actualized Visions will handle it for you on time and under budget. Built on the needs of their clients, your actualized visions is competitively priced and economical, saving you money and greatly enhancing your bottom line. At your actualized visions, customer service is all local with one point of contact. No more dealing with robo answering machines, getting the runaround, or speaking to someone in another country. Your Actualized Visions understands your hyper-local advertising needs and focuses on bringing you real clients. They do not buy likes, followers, or fake results. Your campaigns are real, built with real community followers who want to purchase your services and products. The only thing standing in the way of your company's success is you now picking up the phone right now and calling Your Actualized Visions at 310-413-8773. To learn more about what Your Actualized Visions can do for you and your company, visit the website at youractualizedvisions.com. Your Actualized Visions, your dreams today, not someday. I'm your host, Joe Terry, and you can read all about our many adventures on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The South Bay Show. Persistence, passion, principle, and purpose. That is what we talk about here on the South Bay Show. And joining me, of course, I'm not alone because of our great partnership with South Bay by Jackie.com and executive producer of the South Bay Show, Jackie Valestra. Hey, Jackie, how are you? I'm doing well, Joe. How are you doing? Wonderful, wonderful. Well, excited wonderful. about today. Good. I am excited, <laughs> too. I am excited, too, because I have been trying to get our today's guest on this show literally for years, but he's a busy guy and um, we had to rearrange things to make this happen today. So um, I'm real excited about that. So we're, we're going to, we're going to jump right into that, into it, if that's okay with you. Wonderful. Jackie, who's our guest today? Our guest this morning is Richard Foss, journalist, author, culinary historian, and lecturer based in Manhattan beach. Richard is also our local food writer for the Easy Reader News and keeps us up to speed on the South Bay dining scene, which began exploding about 10 years ago. Now, when the coronavirus pandemic caused a total shutdown of the economy, governments, companies, restaurants, retail shops, and service providers scrambled to reimagine how to conduct business and keep their doors open, metaphorically speaking. While many businesses continue to operate with employees working from home, the restaurant industry was particularly hard hit. Faced with emergency mandates from every level of government, the initial shutdown, partial reopening, another shutdown, special equipment and PPE costs, staff shortages, and breakdown of the supply chain, it's been a harrowing roller coaster ride for restaurants large and small. South Bay restaurants have managed the crisis in a variety of ways. Some chose to wait it out and close their doors for the duration. Others became neighborhood markets. Many now offer only takeout and or delivery. Countless eateries have taken to the streets, parking lots, curbs, and alleys for alfresco dining. And sadly, too many have closed for good. Now, as I mentioned, I've been trying to schedule Richard for a number of years, and and we adjusted things to make it happen. He's finally here. (laughs) And today, Richard will give us an overview on the South Bay dining scene seven months into the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome to the program, Richard. We are thrilled you are joining us today. Thank you very much, Jackie and Joe. It's great to be on. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure. Um, We did uh, only want to cover just a little bit of your history. Of course, people who want to know more can always go to richardfoss.com, richardfoss.com for the Foss Files. But 
been in the game of foodie, that new term that you probably, you know, remember as, oh, that's that new term. You've been in this game for 30 plus years. What? Actually, longer than you, what longer you than would appear. I've been writing about it professionally for 35 years. I started out with a newspaper called the Los Angeles Reader, then started writing for the Easy Reader and have stayed with them ever since. Along in there, I've written for another 20 or 30 different publications. I've really lost count. But when you actually track it back, I've actually really been interested in food in the South Bay uh, really since I was in high school. Uh, I was lucky enough hmm. to do some traveling when I was young, traveling with my family, and I got fascinated with the things that we were eating overseas and started wondering, why can't I find those back at home? And the uh. joke that I made back then, I was aware of the fact that you could go to almost any restaurant, take the menu, go to any other restaurant, and order, and no one would know because they were mostly serving the same thing. We were a whole area of steak and seafood and burger houses and not a lot of other variety. And in the last 20 years, wild things have gotten interesting around here. Mm, right. is, it 20, is it 20 years, Richard? I, I, you know, I, would, I said in the intro it was about 10 years ago that things really exploded, but was, was there was stuff happening prior to that? Oh, absolutely. If you if you look back at the South Bay dining scene, 20, 20, really 20 to 25 years ago was when it really started accelerating, when we started getting sushi and Thai and various other things that had not been available around here before that. Uh, so, it, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. We, the, the scene started uh, at about 25 years ago. We started getting some cultural diversity, some creativity. You know, Chez Melange uh, opened longer ago than that. When you, if you want to say to say something that when did the South Bay start getting interesting? When did we start getting into con- some connection with Greater Los Angeles? Because outside ideas had gotten here, uh, there and the the other one that I have to give credit to besides Chez Melange was the original Cafe Pierre, because those two places dragged us kicking and screaming into the 20th century, uh, just as it was about to turn to the 21st. Mm. And they're and, and and neither are there anymore. I I can't even tell you how much I miss Chez Melange. Uh, oh yes, Boozy. Well, Boozy was my go-to spot. Boy, I miss them. And but you gotta, you gotta say they they really picked their time well to close. Oh yes, of of all of the accidents that could have possibly happened for them to have gone out on such a high note and had their last day in business a matter of weeks before every restaurant shut down, that was a, an amazing accident that happened to work out well for them. If you're going to close this year, that was the time to do it. Right. But we had other things. A lot of people don't remember it, but there was an experimental era in Manhattan Beach uh, 25 years ago when we had things like uh, there was a place called the Aussie Bistro that tried doing Nouvelle Australian food in Manhattan Beach. And that was a bizarre idea for L.A. in general. You know, but we had well, we, we did have some items coming in that, you know, we would scoff at a lot of them now. But for what they were, it was uh, an era of creativity, and it did come to the South Bay. There was a place called Splash Restaurant that uh, was the original uh, restaurant in the Holiday Inn Crown Plaza that was doing spectacular stuff. Uh, I remember being in there, and at one point I was sitting on the patio, and a server came up with an ashtray, lit a cigar in it, and said, would monsieur like a cigar? And I looked at him and said, no, and why did you just waste that? And the chef, who I was talking to at the time, said, pick it up. And I picked it up, and it was made of chocolate, filled with custard, and had a sugar cube soaked with alcohol at the end so that he could light it so it looked like a cigar. And I picked it up and started 
the burning cigar, and the people at the next table dropped their silverware because there was a guy at the next table eating a burning cigar. And it was like that was the kind of culinary flim-flam that happened at that place. Anything that got served there, you didn't know whether it was a table decoration, food, or something else. It was, it was wild. <laughs> I remember Splash. I, I, I remember Splash. Well, Joe, I, I know something that you may not know. You mentioned Richard's website, which is, boy, oh, boy, so many great articles on that website. Um, I got hmm. into it, and it's it was difficult to pull myself away. But, Joe, did you know that Richard has his own Wikipedia page? Oh, wow. Oh. And I don't yeah. know who Whoa. put that up there. It, well, I don't know who put that up there. I know where they got some of the information because they faithfully uh, added some incorrect stuff that I had to have someone else correct. So, and it was fr- that was from a convention program that I participated in. One of the things that you didn't mention and that's highly relevant at the moment is I'm curating an exhibition at the Autry Museum of the American West that is now scheduled to open in 2022 called Cooking Up a New West that is about each wave of immigration to California and how it changed the way that the world eats. So, Oh, I, I, didn't, you, didn't, you do, didn't you do a culinary talk on that already? I remember something last year. You, you, had, um, that was, you did something. Uh, that was that was one about uh, immigration. It's called Seven Gifts from LA Kitchens to the World, right. uh, and that's a, that's focusing on just seven different items that were invented in Los Angeles. This exhibition is a lot bigger because it's about all of California and goes much much deeper. So different oh, thing. Be, I was just figured I'd mention it in case any of your listeners out there would be curious about that sort of thing. That'll mm. be interesting. That'll be very interesting. But okay, so. Where should Richard? Where should we start with? Uh, let's start with what you were saying before the show about how even if, in a good year, uh, it, it's hard to make a, a restaurant work. Oh, oh, well, well Jackie, you started. Let me, let me set it up, mm-hmm. Richard. Okay. Let me set it up, Richard. Yeah. We're in a COVID nineteen era. Half of the restaurants are closing. What are we going to do, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely acting there. Beautifully done. Um, (laughs) Well, here's the thing. First of all, keep in mind uh, to get a sense of perspective. In any given year, 20 to 20% of the restaurants over, you know, over time, 20% of the restaurants that open in the South Bay in a good year don't last two years. We always, I, I have kept a record of every restaurant that opened and closed in the South Bay for at least the past 10 years, uh, probably the past 15. I'd have to look and see how far it goes back. But as I look at that, I started tracking a while ago just for my own amusement to see what percentage of them lasted two, you know, lasted two years, lasted five years. In any given year, there's a restaurant that opens and closes within the same year. And in most years, you have 20% uh, failure within two years, and you have 50% failure within five years. So this is the kind of thing where we always, in a good year, that's the thing that happens. And I should mention that for a restaurant to go under does not necessarily mean that they were bad cooks or that the restaurant was badly run. Because there's an incredible number of things that can take a restaurant down. Uh, there have been restaurants. I mentioned the restaurant Splash in, the, uh, that in their original incarnation. They were able to be absolutely packed every single day and still lose money because of the fact that the chef that they had had no conception whatsoever of the economics of running a restaurant. He was a brilliant chef. He was a terrible accountant, and he managed to go down with all flags flying, basically, with a full group of customers who loved what he was doing, but he just didn't have that one thing right. But there were uh, there are other situations where there's a lot of people who get into the restaurant business who have no prior experience. They get into the restaurant business, and then they discover something. They were a great home cook. They were a very, very good caterer. But when you're a home cook, you're allowed to make whatever you want for people. You don't have all of these orders coming in and bombarding you were in the middle of making one thing is okay start this one over here start that one over there 
And even if you can do it well, it is an insane amount of work. And a lot of people just get into the business and then they discover this isn't really how I want to spend my life. You have a lot of restaurants that open up. Uh, there was a wonderful Greek restaurant in Los Angeles, in Redondo Beach years ago, that one of the things that nobody knew was the woman who ran it was going to run the restaurant for exactly as long as it took for her daughter to graduate from college because she was running the restaurant in order to get her da- daughter through college. And as soon as her daughter graduated, boom, it's closed. So, you know, wow. you don't know the reasons that restaurants close immediately. Don't don't assume any negative aspect of the quality of the food, the quality of the business management. Sometimes you end up with something where, oh, we just discovered that the partners don't really like each other anymore now that they're working here every day, and we're going to close. So there's mm-hmm. all kinds of reasons it can happen. So this year, yes, this year restaurants are facing the worst year they have ever had. We have had times when we had a bad economy. We've never had times where we had a bad economy at the same time as we have all of these different restrictions that reduce the number of people who can dine in a restaurant at the same time as they run up the costs. Costs for cleaning the place, costs for all of those to-go items, and just it is, uh, and the fact that a lot of restaurants, when they're going to-go business, if you're ordering through one of those food services, the food services are siphoning off 20% uh, or more right. of the revenue. And most restaurants are not really, they're not set up to have a 20% profit margin. So mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, I was talking with someone who knows the business very, very well. And he said, you know, you might expect that the restaurants that are really going to suffer on this are going to be a lot of the high-end restaurants. A lot of the burger and pizza joints are going to have a real problem because of the fact that they're already set up with a very high volume, very low profit margin. They're Mm -hmm. going to have trouble too. So Everyone is having trouble. Everyone is going to continue having trouble because right now, even if by some insane fiat, every restaurant were to just say, oh, no more social distancing, we'll pack the place to the walls, I'll tell you Mm. as a diner, if I walked in and I saw a place packed to the walls, I wouldn't go inside. (laughs) You know, it's it's not just, you know, we can't just blame any mandate. There, I have some neighbors who are dear friends of mine who I know they love good food. They usually go out to eat all the time. They have not been to a restaurant since day one of COVID, no matter how well run, no matter how much I tell them, look, there's plenty right. of airflow. They're doing contactless. Right. They haven't dined out since March. And these are people who have Here. the ready cash to dine anytime, anywhere they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fear factor. The so, fear factor. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that, that is the key. And and also, Richard, just for our audience sake, I want to say that I am a, a, a believer in, you know, the dire straits that we are in. And so it is not just about restaurants. It's about so many different kinds of companies. Commercial real estate companies are suffering in every town and hamlet and city across our nation because those people that used to rent 2,000, 4,000, 5,000 square feet, most of their people are, 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 are working at home and they're saying, well, maybe we could cut back. Maybe next year we'll, we'll cut our it's, rentals it's, in half. Joe it's, Joe, it's not just commercial property. It's every landlord. Every landlord My God. is suffering. It's, 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 so it's not just real estate. And right. there's all kinds yeah, of right. knock-on effects. I, you know, who's getting? I'll, I'll give you an example. What we have dry cleaners all over the place. Who's wearing clothes that need to be dry cleaned anymore? Who's going out of the right. house? In, right. Yeah, very often. Right. You know, there are all kinds of things that when you start thinking about all of the, uh, if you had a, uh, if you. Work, had a, owned a gas station or worked at a gas station. People are traveling less. They're top, stopping in less to fill up their cars. So it's not only the gas you don't sell. It's the people who you have usually been depending on them to stop in and buy the little snacks and novelties and things at the gas right. station. They're suffering too. Richard, right. It is all Richard, up and down Richard. the economy. 
So Richard, I, I just yeah. got I just filled up my tank I filled up my tank for the first time in six months last week. Yes. <laughs> I, I I know. I I haven't my wife and I both have hybrid cars, and you know, you if you have a hybrid car and you're driving so little now, you you don't fill up your tank for so long, you kind of forget where it is. Uh, it's yeah. so you know, it's it's almost uh, it's almost impossible to name a business that is not affected, uh, and no, you're that right. will right, not right. continue to be affected. Right. So, yes. No. Absolutely. Right. You know, Richard, that brings to mind last year. In Riviera Village, a little restaurant opened. It was, I believe, it was Czechoslovakian. Yeah. And I, I walk through the village or ride through the village almost every day on my bike. And every day, I would go by it. There was nobody in there. Um, I guess it, can you put that down to people just aren't familiar with Czechoslovakian food? Uh, it was a Czech restaurant because, and anyone who is Czech will let you know that Czechoslovakia, while it was a country, they would point out certain minor differences between Czech and Slovak food because there are some. But yes, that Czech restaurant, unfortunately, they I, I have friends who are Czech, and the, the Czech community in Los Angeles is tiny. Uh, and virtually all of them went to eat there, and... Uh, the problem with it is, is like they went to eat there and they said, oh, this is pretty good. It's not as good as my mother's. I still make this at home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you when know. you are when you are opening up a restaurant with a cuisine like that, you need to do a lot of outreach rather than just hope people will wander through your door. And I've got to say, in that case, they did not do that kind of outreach. They they didn't do they didn't do much to try to introduce the food to people. So yeah. right. that's no, I, I have the example to, I have, where I have, I have to say they they made a mistake. They, uh, same thing with the restaurant Azure that opened up a couple of years ago. They had uh, um, they yep. were serving Egyptian food, and Egyptian hmm. food is very different from the Arabic food that we know here, which is mostly based on Lebanese and Palestinian food. Uh, and so people would order something, and they would say, well, this is wrong. And it's like, no, it's not wrong. That's the way Egyptians make this item. But they had things uh, like they had a, a dish. Uh, they had some items that used meluchia, which meluchia is a, uh, it's a kind of leaf that the Egyptians use uh, as like spinach in thickening stews, things like that. They didn't even tell anybody what it was. They had some – they served a kind of – flatbread pizza that is it's it's not it was made using a flaky dough and they didn't bother uh, to tell people what it was you know when you when you're serving something unusual you have to do the outreach and the education and well you know a lot of people who come here they don't know what we don't know and even mm-hmm. you know even people one of the problems sometimes you need an outsider to look at your menu uh, there was an Indian restaurant in uh, that was in the South Bay some time ago, and I was talking with the owner, and I told him, I really enjoy your food, but you're doing this from a very different area uh, of India than most people know, and you have some terms on the menu that most people don't know. And he said, like what? And I said, well, you have this item here that you say is made with besam. And I said, Americans don't know what Bassam is. And he went, really? That's why I'm not selling it. Okay, I'll tell them that it's Grom. And it's like, I'm really sorry to tell you this. <laughs> they don't know what Grom is either. So, you know, you have the problem of sometimes you uh, – I think that the average person uh, – you know, the, the average person in the South Bay is really fairly open to new experiences – but there is something that restaurants need to do, which is to make those experiences um, something where, if we've never had it before, we know why we want it. And now to tie this into the COVID thing, which I am going to get back to this sometime, um, yes. one of the things that I saw that I was very surprised by was when the lockdown first happened and everyone went to takeout, a lot of restaurants decided, oh, okay, we're going to serve comfort food. So they started doing beef stew and fried chicken and, um, you know, shepherd's pie. Meatloaf. Yeah, yeah meatloaf. And they were doing these items, uh, and they stopped making some of the items that their restaurants were famous for. And when I talked to you know, I, I 
emailed a couple of restauranters saying, why are you doing this? You're making things we can make at home at a time when I want cooking that reminds me that I live in the 21st century in this civilized place where you can get all kinds of fun stuff. So, hmm. you know, there's at a certain to a certain degree, this seems like the time for a good time for restaurateurs. Yeah, okay, keep serving the fried chicken and the meatloaf because it's selling, but also go back into your family cookbook and come up with something wonderful that we've never had before, and give us some advance notice and tell us we're going to do this really great kind of roast lamb dish or roast goat or whatever we're going to do, this stew that is really grandma's stew. Give us the comfort food from your country, not the comfort food from this country. Mm. Let us learn something. Mm. Okay, and so it, listen, I, I, ha- I, have a couple, I have a couple of notes here, okay? A, uh, I just away. want to point out that when I was growing up, when I was going to school, when I was a kid in school, um, I'm of the age where there was a Czechoslovakia and a Yugoslavia, so I have to uh, apologize yeah. for that. It's Czech, Czechoslovakian. Um, number two, Azor, I went there for a chamber event fell in love with the food, went back faithfully a couple of times each week for the next month, two months, and then one day I went and they were closed. Very upsetting. When on on your point about, you know, the comfort food, I went to a restaurant specifically to have a very specific dish. They they had seating outside. I got there, I had to wait 15 minutes for the table, sat down, got an abbreviated menu, and the dish I wanted was not on it. <laughs> it was not on it. So I, I got up and I walked out because I was in the mood for that particular thing. And with regard to the takeout, and, and again, these, these, these limited menus, um, my experience with takeout has not been good. Um, we've ordered stuff that didn't, look like the description it was we've ordered things and have gotten wrong things um i'm a cook so i cook five nights a week usually and we'll go out to to eat once or twice on the weekends but i'll I'll tell you something with all of this going on i i want to support you know our local restaurants but um there i'm just not i'm i'm just not going out (laughs) for a number Mm -hmm. of reasons uh the crowd there are some, the crowded, I'd say there, there are the some crowd. cuisines that work very well as takeout and some that just plain don't. Um, no. Yeah. So there, and there are some restaurants that we go to that we love because of the fact that part of the allure of the place and part of the reason that we're willing to pay the prices for their food is that we expect to sit down and we're going to enjoy this slow pattern of courses and a meal developing over your starters and then you have a super a salad and then your main course and then your dessert and getting it all at once in a box with all the hot items hot and all the cold items cold and trying to figure out what am I doing with this um, you know how do I how do I get anything like the experience that it is what attracted me to this restaurant in the first place. Some restaurants do it better than others in terms of how to export the experience. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. yeah. You know, you're you're absolutely right. So, um, Joe, did the you restaurant, have I want to give a shout out to the restaurant that I think of all of the restaurants that I've gone to in the South Bay. The one that does the most fantastic job at absolutely thinking through their to-go experience and then providing it in a way so that you get it the way that you should have it is Baran's hmm. 2239. And oh. one of the things that they do, I mean, they're serving a, a limited menu every week. You're, you're getting a prefix meal every week to go. But what you get in the bag with that prefix meal they give you, here are all the items that are in here, and okay, uh, item number one here, which is the salad, uh, If you, when you open the box, you will find two little containers, one of them is the dressing, and one of them is some seasoned breadcrumbs, and like sprinkle the dressing and then the seasoned breadcrumbs. Item two, which is this vegetable starter, put that in your toaster oven or regular oven for 15 minutes at 250 degrees. I mean, they give you this thing that gives you the sequence for the meal, the way to make that meal as good as it's possibly going to be, and it's, you know, they really have thought it through. Um, Mm. Because when, you know, the other thing, the thing that I'm doing a lot 
with takeout is there are some things that I figure, well, uh, I love to cook, incidentally. There there are some people who suspect, okay, you're a food writer. That probably means you never eat at home. What that really means is I love cooking. I have loved cooking since I was a teenager, and some of the things that I do, uh, I remember when I go to a restaurant that has a fantastic dish, uh, I figure out how to recreate it at home. Uh, I actually have a, a – I kidded about and half seriously was going to run a cooking class called The Best Dishes I Have Stolen, uh, which is <laughs> I'm going to take items that items from restaurants that no longer exist in the South Bay and hear what some of their signature dishes are, and here's how I reverse engineered them. Um, mm. Because I love I, – I adore cooking. Well, that means that what I'm doing with takeout now is I'm being very selective. I mean, if something, if part of a component of a meal, if what the restaurant is offering is just, you know, a, a romaine and purple onion salad, I can do that as well at home. And at my house, I'll be putting fresh tomatoes from my vines on it. So I don't get that. All right. But if there's something that that restaurant does where I go, oh, either I can't cook that or there's something that to make this, you have to make a great whacking heap of it, and uh, if I do that at home, I'll be suffering through those leftovers for a week. No, I, I want to get the. I want to buy the items that either are a lot of effort to cook, or that you can't make in small batches, uh, or that require uh, items that I don't have at home. Those are the things that I'm really savoring. Right. Yeah, right. that's funny you say that because I'm the same way when I go out to eat. I always get something that I'm not going to make at home for whatever reason. You know, it's it's uh, it, it's right. a treat. I like it. It's good, but it's not something I'll cook at home. Go ahead, Joe. Oh, you know, we need to take well, a station now, break. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I will. I will do the station break, and then Richard, I have a question for you, and I'm I will pre, pre, preview the question <laughs> with you and what you do, Richard, sure. is the real life example of the protagonist in one of, in my opinion, the greatest films ever made. So with that presage, um, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the South Bay show. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, we are uh, normally on the air, uh, 8 a.m. Uh, Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Friday morning, 8 a.m. Uh, Friday or Thursday morning is the South Bay show where we try to bring you the best of the best of the South Bay, whether it's food, of course, or whether it's uh, entertainment, or um, sometimes it's it's government news and certainly political news from El Segundo to the Hill and then east, of course, to Torrance. But on Fridays, we do much of the same thing, but with a special emphasis for uh, uh, Manhattan Beach Chamber 360 much of the same uh, things that we do on Thursday, but with an emphasis on the city of Manhattan Beach and the members of the Manhattan Beach Chamber, because on Friday we're proudly sponsored by the Manhattan Beach Chamber. But with that said, and of course you can listen to us on any of your smart speakers, just say your smart speaker name like Siri or, or Alexa or Google, play the South Bay show and you'll hear us uh, the, the latest show. Richard, as I yes, said, sir. you what you do, what you do is 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 the real life example of one of the protagonists in one of, in my opinion, the greatest films ever made. That film won a Golden Globe, and it won the Oscar in its genre in 2007 as the best film, and that film is Ratatouille. Oh. <laughs> um, it's hard. I, I I know people. Some people who you know don't have kids or don't remember the film. The the film critic in that film was like a living god. People walked out of his way as oh, he I'm... walked down the street because they were fearful that if he had the hint of a mistake or a, 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 a cold oh. dish or, or something in a restaurant, they could be ruined. But Well, I'll mention that you named, you named possibly the only film that I saw that year 
uh, that was made that year. I am completely not a film buff. Um, yeah. I when I when I say that I you know, I read rather than watch you know, watch films either in the going to movies days or I, I don't yeah. know how to use our VCR. My wife uses it every once in a while and wants to show me something, but I have never figured out how to use our cable box, all of that other stuff. Because <laughs> when I say that I have a hundred books that I want to read, I don't mean that as some vague idea out there somewhere. I mean right now here in this house, there are at least a hundred yeah. books that I mean to read, and that's not counting the ones on my Kindle. So, a hundred yeah. paper books. I am not a film fan. The reason that I saw that film is some friends invited me over for dinner, and my wife had colluded with them. They had it uh, <laughs> queued up so that I couldn't leave their house without seeing this film. Because right. I had no desire to do so. Um, but they made me no, watch no. it, and I absolutely enjoyed it. So, so uh, it was, so, they so, tricked me into having a great evening. It, the denouement of that film, the, the 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 one of the peak points was that this film critic, this food critic, had a an experience when he tasted the film, the food from this particular chef, uh, Remy, who happened to be a rat, um, yep. and he remembered his the ratatouille that his mom had made. So the question, Richard, is, what was the very first dish? that you had and where was it and who who made it for you that 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 told you food is important <laughs> well let me get a let me get a thought out of my head that I'm going to mention first the yeah. thing about that that actually <laughs> did almost bring me to tears about that same scene um i have a twin brother he and i actually spent a couple of years trying to reverse engineer our grandmother's Polish sausage and a barbecue sauce that was made by my grandfather. And literally one evening, my brother called me up at something like 11 o'clock at night, 11.30 at night. And, you know, a call at that mm. time is not generally a social call. It's an emergency. And he mm. I up the phone and he shouts, Coriander. That was coriander that was in there. That's the flavor that we were trying for. And because who would have thought that my grandfather would have put coriander in that barbecue sauce? And it was like that was the level on which we did this thing of, oh, my gosh, there is a food that we remember from our childhood that we didn't get our grandfather to write down the recipe before he died and that we have been right. trying to exactly get that because it was the best barbecue sauce I, we ever had. Uh, and wow. with regard to my grandmother's sausage, uh, I used to, because of the fact that there were no Polish delicatessens in Los Angeles when I was growing up, um, Hmm. There were foods that we just couldn't get that my mom and my grandmother, when she was still alive and living out here, wanted. So every time I was traveling to Europe, I would set it up with a layover in Chicago where I'd give myself eight hours in Chicago. I would run to Goodwill and buy a cheap suitcase, then run down to the hmm. area with all the Polish markets and stuff a suitcase full of all of the sausages and bread and things like that that my mom and grandmother couldn't make because it was the biggest – there was nothing I could bring home that would make them so happy as the foods of their childhood. So right. I get this about the connection between food and something profoundly emotional. Uh, one of the things that I mention right. sometimes when I'm doing some of my lectures on culinary history, I used to teach a series through UCLA Extension about culinary history, and I would mention to the class about there's, there's a book that everyone respects and very few people read called Remembrance of Things Past that begins with someone biting into a cookie, a Madeleine cookie, and then suddenly being transported back to their childhood. And that is mm. 
such a universal thing for people who grew up in a particular culture. If you grew up and there were certain foods that were the foods of celebration, they were the foods of your grandmother's kitchen. And we used to have this strong emotional response to that food that was the food of our culture. Well, when someone Mm. grows up now in California, what's the food of their culture? You know, when you grow up where everything is all around you, you know, we, there's a link that has existed since the beginning of human history that just recently broke, and most people didn't notice it. And that is that link mm. between, that means the flavors of home. Um, mm. I, I was going to mention, when I, one time when I was in Chicago, uh, I went into a Polish deli in Chicago, and it was uh, afternoon, 4.30 in the afternoon, and they closed at 6. And I looked at this vast array of sausages, and someone came up to help me. And I said, well, I'm trying to get sausage that is like my grandmother used to make. And they said, well, where in Poland is she from? And I said, I don't know. Uh, I, I actually don't know where she was from. And he said, okay, mm. juniper or no juniper? And I said, no, juniper. And he had put his hand over a map of Poland and said, that rules out this part. Okay, pork and beef or just pork? And I said, well, it's all pork. Coarse grind or fine grind? And he kept covering more and more of the map uh, as he did this. And he said, your grandmother came from over here. And he pointed an area near the border with Belarus. Well, I was like, okay, uh, do you have that? He said, well, I'm down to about 35 kinds of sausage, but you're lucky I have that one. And I took some of it home, and it was just one of those things that was transcendent. Yes, that was it. And then when we finally found out years later, we found the when we were researching family history, we found her father's obituary, and we looked at where in Poland it was. The guy had the guy at the deli had nailed it. He knew years before we did what village my grandfather my grandfather's father came from. Wow. So that's wow. the kind that's of thing that you used to be able to tell through culinary history. The great Brillat Savarin, who was not a chef himself but a transcendent writer about the joys of food, said, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are. And at the time that he mm. said that, if you told him what you ate, you would have told him your social class, the names of the food that you mentioned would be highly regional so he would know your social class the region you came from he might know your religion mm. because of the fact that depending mm. on where you were and what festival days there used to be all kinds of different festival foods so you know you could go down and you could discover a huge amount about someone from food and we're losing that regionality we're losing that flavor of home I'm proud of the fact that uh, I've made my grandparents' sausage recipe and some cookies called kruschikis and things like that with my children. My children know how to make those old recipes. I know almost nobody now that has taught their kid how to make those recipes, not just the simple ones, the time-consuming ones, because of the fact that that's what the taste of home is. So as much as I love writing out a lot of the foods that are – really have an emotional resonance to me are things that are very, very hard to get. Uh, there's a Polish restaurant called Warszawa uh, over in Santa Monica, there, which I, I don't know if they're still open. I, I, I haven't, I don't know whether what's happened with them in COVID. There is a Polka Deli down in Orange County that every once in a while I have to go, anytime I have to go anywhere near the city of Orange, Oh, there is just no question. Mm. I am stopping by that deli, you know, and I'm coming back mm. with a car that smells like a garlic farm. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Joe, Joe, I can, I, I can, I can ans- answer your initial question. Uh, what, what Anthony Bourdain's first uh, eating experience was that turned his life onto food? Oh yeah, yeah, the oysters, yeah, the oysters, yes, yeah. Oysters. Right. He was out. He was out with his. I think it was his uncle on a boat, yeah. and they were gathering oysters. And he ate his first oyster, and it changed his life. That was it. That was that right. was his moment. Yeah, well, interesting. I, I at various times I have been lucky enough to both do some traveling, and I was also lucky in that my father. My father was not a very well educated man. He was a depression 
child who had to quit school in order to help with the family business. He never graduated high school, but he loved learning about different cultures. And when I was a kid, we, any time my father would see something in the newspaper about some kind of festival in Chinatown or let's go out to this Mexican festival here or a Salvadoran festival or something. When he saw something that was an ethnic festival, he wanted us to understand the cultures that were all around us. And that included the food. And my dad was an adventurous eater. So we used to go all over Los Angeles when I was a kid. I was lucky enough. Part of, part of why I am the person that I am is because of the fact that my father loved to get us in touch with different cultures. And, you know, when you go to a restaurant, it's not always just the food that you encounter. If you ask a person around Los Angeles, you know, who was the first, well, let's say when I was young, it was like, who was the first Thai person you ever talked to? Oh, guaranteed it was in a restaurant because that's where somebody who was a white boy from Manhattan Beach would run across someone from Thailand. And when you, but when you're there, you start looking at the architecture and the pictures on the wall, and maybe you hear their music, and you go, hey, that sounds pretty good. I want to hear more of that. Um, and it's an introduction to the culture as a whole. Uh, it's one that you can choose to walk through that door or not. You can walk in, have the food, walk out, and not learn a bit about the culture. But if it's a slow day and they have time to talk to you about it, sometimes you get an entree into that culture. You start learning a little bit more about it. And you, in, when you learn more about the culture of the people in your city, you're becoming more of a citizen of the world, more of a citizen of your whole city rather than just of your block. Mm-hmm. You know, Richard, mm-hmm. um, you know, there is a great Italian restaurant in the South Bay. I'm not going to name it. I'm not going to say what city it's in. The food is fantastic. But from the very first time I ate there, I, I was like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel Italian. Nothing about this feels Italian, whereas there are other Italian restaurants I go into, and there are Italian people working there, and the music is Italian, and maybe there's something about the decor that is Italian. But this restaurant uh, was just uh, – it's, nice, it's a very nice restaurant, but nothing about it screamed Italian to me. And so as good as the food is, it's not one of my favorite places to go. But let's, um, let's move on because we only have about, I don't know, 15 minutes left or so. You mm-hmm. mentioned Barons and how well they do take out. Can yep. you tell us some of some of the better hits during COVID time and some of the misses, restaurant speaking? I'm not going to go into the misses right now. I don't feel mm. like don't feel like doing that right now because of the fact that mm. I want to give people a chance. I I will talk about things things that can be done better, and some people may be. Uh, will go, oh, wait a minute, I've been to a place that did that, and maybe they'll figure some of this stuff out for themselves, but I'm not going to do that because uh, I want to give places a chance to learn and do it better because there are places that are continually calibrating what they do and improving it. Um, Some of the other hits, I mean, one of the things that opened up this year that I find very exciting is Mia's Kitchen over on Rosecrans, which is the South Bay's first Trinidadian uh, cafe and they're to go only and since they're to go only uh, and since they opened up during this time well they didn't have a transition because they had to work it out from the get-go and since trinidadian food involves some things that are like curries and stews and things like that um that's something that is very forgiving i mean it also does involve the roti flatbread that is the indian style flatbread for those who don't know, Trinidad and Tobago, there were a large number of people who came from what is now India, Pakistan, and the Indian community in Fiji and ended up there. So there are Indian elements and Caribbean elements, and that's a place that I found to be really quite fun. Um, Indian food in general is one of the ones where I have been, I, I've been enjoying a lot of Indian takeout because when you have something that is like a curry, that where it's really not all about uh, the texture, you know, it can it can sit in your car for a while and it doesn't get any worse, and it can be reheated, doesn't get any worse. That's great. Um, so the further that I'm, you know, there, there are some items that I'm getting mainly from places that are closer to me. I've always been 
as much as the the quintessential American takeout meal is pizza, oh my gosh, a good pizza suffers so much from a good pizza suffers so much from being taken to go. I mean, that said, mm-hmm. the people over uh, I wrote recently about sour Italian food uh, down on the uh, Hermosa Pier Plaza that I just adore their 72-hour risen crust pizza. I think it's fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. And they do, you know, they're, they're sending all of their stuff out to go. Uh, well, they're sending most of their stuff out to go. They have a little dining space now. But they're another one. They're one that I would say is doing a particularly good job. Um, one of the things in general about you know what can places do. Oh, and you know another one that opened up recently is the Source Cafe in Manhattan Beach. I had a to-go meal from there that was excellent. Now you know they're another one that I think they've they have figured this since they opened up during COVID. They had time to figure out some of the details. Um, Slay's Italian has mm-hmm. done very, very well. I really adore them, and there, you know, there's something about fresh pastas, and you know, you really, a lot of people think they can't tell the difference between a fresh pasta and a dried pasta. Um, there are people that prefer a dried pasta, but boy, for the texture, the fresh pasta has this little springiness to it, and um, mm. we've been dining there a good bit. Um, the, the spiciness, uh, you know, I, I enjoy getting things, you know, zippy and zesty and spicy. So, uh, you know, getting some of the items from Barsha, uh, their shakshuka, uh, which is one of those items that has been trending in the last couple of years. Uh, the mm. eggs that are cooked in a spicy bell pepper and red pepper and tomato sauce. That's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Now I'm making Fantastic. myself. Yeah. Is that is that the is that the Barsha <laughs> restaurant in Hermosa or the or yes. the Barsha uh, the Barsha restaurant in, in Hermosa? Now the the Barsha restaurant in Manhattan Beach is a wine bar with food and you know there. I mean, you want to get a tray a charcuterie plate or something like that. They do them at a they do them at a reasonable price and they're quite lovely. So, but you know, didn't the restaurant? In, it, didn't the restaurant in Hermosa change the name? Because I was there for the uh, soft opening. I think it was a different name at the time, was it? No, they opened up as they opened up as Barsha, and having two restaurants in different cities that are doing different. Yeah, you know, one of them is a wine bar that's a wine bar and liquor store that serves some food, and the other is a full restaurant. And having them both have the same name seemed to me to be kind of bizarre, but. Um, it's working out for them, so. Um, oh, okay. I, I, I'm wrong then. For some reason, I thought they had opened it up under another name, but I guess I am wrong. Um, okay, continue. I just um, one, some of the things that uh, restaurants can do uh, in order to make the to go uh, work a little bit better is sometimes I, I mentioned about brands that they will give you something that is basically a kit. You know take these items and just before serving, add this and then this, uh, rather than send it out the way that you would if that was a dish in the restaurant, if there's a way that you could improve it by uh, setting it up that way, that's what restaurants should do. Um, Locale 90 is doing that with their pizza kits. Oh, you know, I, I, I have not been down there to get one of those, but that makes the only thing about that that I wonder about is that one of the things about Locala 90 is that they have those wonderful, extremely high heat ovens. And yeah. I'm not sure that you can actually get – I'm not sure that most people can get their kitchen ovens up to that heat. Um, right. I know people who have been uh, getting – there's a type of uh, toaster oven, uh, particularly uh, the ones that are made by Breville, although Black & Decker does – a, a similar version, uh, the ones the the ones that have the ability to actually go up to, go up to air fryer, so it's a convection oven at something like 600 degrees, and um, mm-hmm. 
I'm doing a lot. I'm, I'm actually using my toaster oven a lot more than uh, my main oven nowadays because when I'm mainly cooking for two, um, what's the use of heating up the whole kitchen and getting that giant space uh, hot in order to make one pizza? You know, get a, an oversized yeah. toaster oven, buy one of the good ones. Breville is the probably, and no, I am not getting paid by them. And currently I don't even <laughs> I wish I was, but currently I don't even I, have one of those, but a friend of mine does, and I have just watched some. He's a baker, and he's doing incredible breads out of that thing. But it, you, know, you will I, heat up I your have, less and save, you know, save energy. I have, uh, Richard, I have a recommendation for a pizza oven of uh, impeccable uh, 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 pedigree. It's called Bertello. B-E-R-T-E-L-L-O, Bertello.com. It was recently featured on Shark Tank. Uh, Kevin O'Leary uh, uh, took that deal and uh, 900 degree oven. Just wow. propane and wood chips, if you wish, and uh, apparently produces uh, some amazing, uh, some amazing pizza. I actually have in my backyard right now a giant pile of the kind of refractory b- brick that is used for very high heat, and uh, <laughs> I'm planning on I'm planning on building a gas-fired uh, bread oven, and if I can find one, I'd, I'd really like to get a tandoor oven too. Um, Rich, Richard, uh, yeah. since you mentioned bread, since you mentioned bread, um, I'm originally from New York, and uh, whenever I go home, what do I bring back? the Italian bread because you can't find anything like it here. Nothing like it here. Um, I've attempted to make it myself and Mm -hmm. uh, it hasn't worked out so well. Um, But that's, 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 that's my I might suggest that you go over to San Pedro to the A1. Are you familiar with the A1 market in San Pedro? Yes. Yes. All right. If you go to the back of A1 Market, they have Italian loaves from four different local Italian bakeries. And now you are pretty obsessive about your loaves if you have fresh loaves every day from four different Italian bakeries. So, I'm going. I think have the same spirit that you have in that. All right, I'm going. That's it. I'm going. Um, yeah. Oh, and um, all right. one of the things is that what I. What I recommend, at least for the first visit, is take the amount of money that you're willing to spend and have it in your pocket and leave your credit cards in the car because <laughs> you're going to, if you love Italian groceries, it's them or there's another uh, deli down in Culver City. Um, the, the oh, Italian I know that. Deli- I know that one. Yes, I know that one. And the one, the one in um, Santa Monica that's uh, kind of hidden away. In an industrial park. Oh gosh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm messing up. I'm not gonna remember the name, but I know the one in Culver City. I know yeah. the one in Santa Monica. Culver and City one on in PCH San Pedro. is, uh, yeah. if if you look at the aisles of different pastas yes. that they have, yes. they have some really obscure stuff. There's a kind of Piedmontese pasta that is made using buckwheat, and it is insane to find that in America. And they've got a couple of versions. I mean, it's. Uh, but you, you know what? You know what? That's what I'm doing next weekend. Next weekend, I'm going to bundle my husband up into the car, and we're going to go check out our favorite Italian delis in, in the South Bay and, and South Bay adjacent. Joe, we have got to wrap this up. Oh, all right. Sorry well, I didn't get to Richard. anything that I know you wanted to talk about, but um, we got a little <laughs> off track. That happens once in a while. I, we can I'm, do it, we can do it again. Unfortunately... Unfortunately, Richard, we're going to have to do this several more times because I have a need, Richard, to talk about the history of rum. I need to know oh. <laughs> about the history of rum. So we're going to have to do this again soon. Richard I happen Fox. to have written a book on that topic. I might be able to help you a little you, bit. You you haven't. You haven't. I'm, I'm shocked. Well, not only am I shocked, I am looking forward to to talking with you about it. Richard Foss, it's been amazing. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Glad I could do that. And, and of course, uh, one note as, a, as an interviewer, I am I'm thrilled that one of my devices was so successful, the device of mentioning Ratatouille, one of my favorite films, was <laughs> successful. And uh, your response, Richard, was to die for. 
it was well, amazing. Uh, your grandmother's sausage. We, we, we will never forget that. Well, I just encourage everybody out there, you know, if you have an older relative who there's something that they make, talk to them about it now and vi- have them make it and video them doing it. Because if they write down the recipe, yes. there's all kinds of things that yes. they're likely to go, well, everybody knows to do that. I don't have to write that down. It's like, no, everybody does not know how to do that. So, you know, no. write that down, do that thing. No. So it can Thank be you. wonderful to, and it can be a, something that you pass along as part of your family legacy. Right, right. Thank you very much for that, Richard. Um, Jackie, this has been this has been one for the books. I, I've been working on it for years. It's wonderful. Oh. It's wonderful. We 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 loved it, loved it, loved it. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. Uh, thank you. We thank you. We will do it again, Jackie. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Joe. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard. Foss.com, richardfoss.com, and just a little hint, richardfoss.com slash history of rum. You will never forget it. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us today. Bye-bye now.